0: I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. On this podcast, we sit down with leaders of all types to explore examples of real leadership and the qualities of all great problem solvers. I think we get really confused about what leadership is. On By Example, we lift up the real leaders, people who are focused on changing the order of things for the better and solving real problems that are right in front of them leading by example. So you'll remember in the last podcast, when I asked Bob Dole to give me an example of a leader, the name he said without any hesitation was John Kemp. I decided I really needed to talk with John Kemp because that's a pretty extraordinary compliment from Bob Dole. John Kemp has so much to say on his own that I decided a full podcast with him would be such a joy to do, to hear. John Kemp was born, imagine this for a moment, born without legs and without arms. And yet, he, like Bob Dole, never felt sorry for himself, was always focused on the possible, as opposed to dwelling on what wasn't possible for him, and is a man filled with spirit and optimism. He leads a school for children with disabilities today. And so, of course, he can empathize with them in such a personal way. One of the things I often say on this podcast and uh, in other venues where I speak to people is that leadership has nothing to do with someone's circumstances. It has nothing to do with their appearance. And John Kemp is the perfect example of that. His circumstances were very dire. Imagine growing up with no arms and no legs, losing your mother at a very young age. Those are tough circumstances. And many people still to this day look at John Kemp and see his appearance and assume that they should pity him. Or maybe they feel compassion for him, but what they don't necessarily see is a leader. And yet John Kemp is surely, decisively, a leader. When I had Bob Dole on the podcast, I asked him to define leadership. And then he talked about you.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: So tell me a little bit how that makes you feel and how you met Bob Dole and... Why you think so highly of him? You have a mutual hero society clearly between the two of you.
1: I'm I'm overwhelmed. I love Bob Dole. I think he is the epitome of of a leader of a of a servant, a public servant, um, and a servant leader. Mm. He is uh, uh, just a man of integrity, a person of integrity. It doesn't matter, but he he is he's demonstrated it all throughout his life. Um, I'm just. I'm sort of blown away here by the nice comments from Senator Dole. I I just love the man, and I love what he stands for and, and the way he handles himself, and that he is, is available to people of any type and any kind of person, no matter what status they have in life. And anybody that, as famous as he is, and what he could be doing with his time every Saturday or Sunday goes to the mall. Mm-hmm. When the weather is right and he doesn't dare to catch cold, he sits and waits for the buses to come from the airports, bringing World War II heroes um, and people who served to see them all and to see the, what he had, has constructed for them. It's just remarkable that he, he loves everyone and, and treats everyone equally and very empowering. I, I think that's the other part that I think is a, a trait of leadership and that what I see in Bob Dole is that he, he says, you can do it, you know, and I believe in you. And I'm going to help you any way I can, but I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to help you figure out how to do it. So never never quite gives you the, the exact road map, but tells you, you know, I believe in you and you can do it. So all in all, um, just a, a person of the highest integrity that I admire so greatly. And I, I, I just love the man. I'm, I'm sort of still blown away by what you just said. So I'm pulling myself together here.
0: Well, you know. It's so interesting, because you just, in your description of Bob Dole, and honestly in his description of you, you've given us a master class in what real leadership is. So you talked about real leaders serve. It's not about them. It's about serving others. You've said that real leaders have integrity and character, old-fashioned words in many ways. And there are lots of people with big positions and titles that we don't necessarily think of as having integrity and character, and yet it's so vital. You've talked about empathy, (laughs) the ability to see people for who they really are, not to get blinded by their appearance or their circumstances or the fact that maybe you're famous and they're not, but to actually see value in every person, which uh, I think is a critical component of leadership. All those things matter so much. One thing you didn't say, but I know you believe it, of him, and I know he believes it of you, is the word courage. Mm -hmm. Uh, The courage to overcome, the courage to be optimistic in the face of very difficult challenges. And one final thing, you talked about... um, telling others that they are capable of doing things. My way of saying that is to say that leaders unlock potential in others. It's their highest calling, actually. And Bob Dole unlocks potential in others by valuing them, and you unlock potential in others with all the work that you do in the disabled community is but one example.
1: Well, I I think you're right about the unlocking potential. I think that is one of the responsibilities of a leader and that is to develop a human being that is working with you and for you and, and to really say how can I best open open up all the assets and free them up and apply them to a, a, a joint a purpose, a shared vision of what we want to get accomplished. And I never said anything about Bob Dole's disability in my first description and yet he is the leader of the disability community to this day. Um, there was Justin Dart, and there's Judy Human, and there are there are phenomenal people in our in our disability leadership community, but Bob Dole, as a as a person who was left for dead in northern Italy and survived somehow, and is 95 years old, and is as smart and as witty and as clever as can be, um, to me is just a testament to courage and bravery and fortitude, and knowing that he, like President. George H.W. Bush, was saved for a reason, and that reason then becomes a cause that he, he knows he has to make life better for other people. And so it's a servant leadership role. Um, he's a, a remarkable human being, and I think unlocking potential is exactly what Um, undermines so many people with disabilities is that they never get their potential out. Mm. And I have the privilege of running a school on Long Island that is the model for the world, and people come from all over the world to see our school. It's a school for medically fragile children who are from kindergarten through grade school, middle school, high school, and up to 21 if they don't get their diploma, who are not not intellectually disabled. They have the ability to engage in a general curriculum, but they can't speak, most of the time, um, and they uh, cannot uh, walk independently, so they're using powered mobility, and they need a lot of physical assistance in toileting and feeding and things like that. And so my job is to let them accept all of these things that are in their life and to say, we, we need to <clears throat> excuse me, unlock you. We need to unlock your potential, and it's not your fault that you were born this way or you live this way. It is to say, how do we pull out of you and open up you to be able to give everything that you've got? And what we have graduating from our school in terms of the students who, who come through our school and then graduate and go on, 86% of our graduates go to college. These are people that would have been left in the corner of a public school building um, without any ability of the... Staff there to know how to interact with them or the interest of, of students to be able to participate with them socially. So they come to our school and it's all kids with disabilities. And it's been those kinds of schools have been looked down upon by the disability community as segregated. And when I say to them, you know, it took me a while to understand why a school like ours exists, but you think about historically black colleges and universities and schools for girls and schools for Jewish kids and there is no reason why it's not a choice because we have a culture and we and we want to learn how to live our lives without being ignored and put in the corner so when i say all that when when you talk about unlocking potential this is exactly what we do at viscardi at the henry viscardi school and that's really what my cause is is to help people un- unlock them to let them be to let them give of their full self
0: and you have so much heart and so much empathy for that mission because of your own life. Tell us a little bit about your early life and how you overcame your own
1: disabilities. Well, I'm a, I'm a fortunate person. I'm a very, very fortunate person. And this, As I tell you this, I hope you, you remember that I, I, this is how I view myself. My dad uh, met my mom in 1943, they married in 44, they had my older sister in 45. I was born in 49, my little sister was born 11 months later. I was born with my disability, missing arms off just above the elbows and one leg off above the knee and and my right leg off below the knee, so I'm a quadruple amputee of sorts because I had little toes and thumbs that had to be removed. And so I, and then my little sister was born 11 months later, which makes us Irish twins, I guess, of sorts. <laughs> so, and then my mother died of ovarian cancer three months after my little sister was born. And there's my dad with three kids, on, you know, five and under, and he's 32 years old. And And then, you know kids would have been given away to the family members or somebody that could have handled it. He said, no, I'm going to raise these kids, and these are these are my kids, and I'm going to take care of them. So we had housekeepers living in the basement, and I shared a bedroom with my dad, and you know, he worked for the federal government. He had been in the Navy, and he worked for the federal government, he has two master's degrees and rose within the federal government, but always kept the family very much in, at the forefront of, of his life. So. I went to regular schools. I got teased. I got bullied. I you know, I came home crying. My dad put everything to perspective. He started talking to me about who has a handicap and who has a disability, and distinguishing that. A disability is something that I have and live with. A handicap is somebody else's preconceived idea that probably puts me in a lesser level than they mm-hmm. are, and so they feel superior in some way. And so he, he was giving me, like, or, or a curb without a curb cut, is is a handicap to someone who's trying to move smoothly through the community. So he gave me all these lessons as I was growing up. So when I graduated from high school, I was feeling pretty good and went on to on to Georgetown University here in Washington D.C. and then uh, law school out in Kansas to where Bob Dole went to Washburn University School of Law. I got a wonderful start in life. I missed. I never knew my mother. I knew I was missing a mother role. And the bad part of this is that we only had—we didn't have the right of one appeal to the other parent. We could only get one answer from our father. It was <laughs> like, can, can we go there? No. That was it. It was done. So I was, I was given a great start in life, and everything I look back to is because my dad empowered me.
0: You know, listening to that story <clears throat> makes, um, it, to me, something your dad said even more remarkable— There are a lot of people who would hear that set of circumstances. Three small children, one with uh, disabilities, a mother who dies tragically suddenly very young. Wow. And yet your dad, I think, said, this is unfortunate, but it's not at all hopeless. Talk about how important that attitude is. Because I think a huge piece of leadership is being optimistic and hopeful and seeing what's possible instead of only focusing on what isn't
1: possible. You're absolutely right, Carly. Um, I I think so much of my, my outlook is drawn from my dad, who was an eternally optimistic person. And he would get up in the morning and was happy. He wasn't one of these grumpy people that walked around until the coffee kicked in and, and he was all right. He was happy from the moment his eyes opened up. And <clears throat> somehow I have that same characteristic, and, and I, I love it and appreciate it. I, I look and and interviewed him before he passed away. He would have been 100 this year. And he really went back to his childhood and how life was like when he was a little boy, and he was born in Wolf Point, Montana, northeast Montana. My grandparents were given land by the government under homestead laws, and they were given a tract of land, and they, and they just dug it out. They planted, and there were more grasshoppers and wheat stalks, and they just made life out of whole cloth. They had nothing, nothing. And it's cold in and Montana. It's... it's <laughs> There's only 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 two seasons. There's yeah, winter, hot and cold. Winter and the Fourth of July. You know, <laughs> so it's it's like you know, if he wakes up happy and he can see a great life which he made for himself and and our family, then I have nothing to complain about. And it's the way I feel about my students. I, I go to them and I look at them. And when I want to, when I think I'm having a bad day, and any of us in the in the place go over there to the school, and, and it's it's all under the same roof, and we go over and we talk to them, and it's like they're loving life they're loving it even even the you know the 14 15 16 year olds that you know at certain times get a little grumpy and, and defiant and all that they love being at discardi because it's a place of freedom and hope and they get a chance to, to dream about a future and then they create their future
0: and they have people who see them as filled with possibilities and gifts,
1: Absolutely. as all people
0: are, but not everyone is recognized as being filled with possibilities and gifts, tragically. It's a
1: perfect description. It's a perfect description. We have the best faculty and, and administrators, and we have a, a very big nursing and healthcare core that basically supports them in their, in their activities and physical therapists and all that. But they're all about unlocking their potential, if I can borrow your very wise phrase.
0: So one of the things that I think um, you would be particularly qualified to talk about, given your experiences, is the difference between sympathy, pity maybe, and empathy. And it's such an important difference. In, in my opinion, empathy, I think, is the ability to actually see someone for who they are, not for what they look like, not for what their circumstances are, but who are they inside and what are they capable of? And sympathy can feel like the right emotion, but it so often kind of bleeds into pity, which I think is not ennobling or uh, uplifting but talk a little bit about how you see the difference. As someone who, very candidly, sometimes some people might have looked at you and pitied you.
1: Well, um, I was the person, I was the little boy that people would say, Oh, you're so cute, you know, and, and, and I feel so sorry for you. And they would tell, in front of me, tell my dad, I feel so sorry that John is born this way. And, you know, my dad would be like, Don't, don't feel sorry. Don't feel sorry for him. He's going to be fine. He's going to be all right. On the on the flight here yesterday from New York, a person walked by me and said, "You're a brave man," and I thought I I take that as a compliment, and and I think she meant it as a compliment. But I, I also thought it's right on the edge of almost being patted, patted on the head, almost. But mm-hmm. I think she really was being sincere. And I kind of look people in the eye and try to assess where they're coming from. Um, your, your points about empathy, I think, are really spot on for the disability community and me, and me as a person with a disability. The empathy that I see, and this is, I, I love reading Dr. Daniel Goleman's work on, on all of his um, emotional intelligence and empathy is a big part of it. Is is really like, can I put myself in someone else's shoes, so to speak? Can I can I l- possibly dream to what it's like that they're the experience they're going through, and then can I understand and appreciate why they might act a certain way and feel a certain way, and can I resolve it in a respectful way, and so. I think of empathy as as that can someone understand if if they were living my life and not be afraid of it but you know have lots of years of knowing how to adjust to it can they understand why I might react positively or neg- negatively to certain ways in which they're communicating with me we learn nonverbal uh, cues and we learn how people are speaking to us even I talk to HR people all the time you know, and com- companies and as do you and I think what they are saying, um, many times, and supervisors, they're saying the right words, but the way in which they're saying it is is patronizing, and, con- and it's and it's not appropriate. So they're doing legally everything right, but they don't. They're not there yet emotionally, and our jobs are to get them to be truly empathetic and understanding of what the circumstance is, and then know how messages are being received. So this was, this is the disability community experience. This is what it's like growing up with a disability. I want you to understand and appreciate what I'm going through, but I don't want you to feel sorry for me and pity me. I do not want that at all, because you'll never see me as equal if you pity me, ever. I'll never be able to be your boss. So And here today, I'm so fortunate to be running this incredible organization that has 400 employees, Three corporations, serves 2,000 people, and is local to global. And so when I think about how do I handle and respect and, and, and unlock everyone's potential, not everybody that works there has a disability, uh, it is about being empathetic to their very unique circumstances, whether they're parents with kids parents of kids who are sick, they have to leave right away, they have to run home for an appointment, they have to do this thing. I have to be as open and and empathetic as possible.
0: And I think it's so wise everything you just said. And I think sometimes when people hear, I I teach leadership, and I think sometimes when people hear the word empathy, they they get what you just said. They say, yeah, I, I have to put myself in someone else's shoes. But they stop there. And I think there's actually, and I think you do too, one more step to empathy, which is if I understand someone else, if I can see someone else, then I have to acknowledge that someone else has as much to bring to the table as I do. That I'm not better, smarter. That's not the same as false humility. But it is to say that if I feel like I have gifts and experiences and things to bring to the table, so do they, (laughs) so do they, so I have to figure out how to interact with these other folks, whoever they are, whatever their journey is as equals and peers, because it's in my interest to do so. They got something to offer.
1: That's right.
0: It's interesting. You were talking about HR, you know, one of the sort of staggering statistics in corporate America today is that, uh, In the American for-profit business community, spends about $8 billion a year on diversity and inclusion training. Sensitivity, inclusion, diversity. And yet, when you look at the actual data, not that much has changed and so what it says is that people are to use your they're checking the boxes they're you know they're going through the motions but they haven't really come to the realization that everyone has something to offer potential that can be unlocked gifts that can be used and we're actually all better off when we are interacting with people not who are just like us but who have have different experiences than us. I'm sure you feel that and see that in your school as well.
1: Definitely, definitely. When you think about the passage of the ADA in 1990 and the employment... The American Disabilities
0: Act, for those who may not know.
1: Sorry, not the American Dental Association, which is also a very good organization, (laughs) but you're right, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990. Employment rate of people with disabilities was about 32%. Today it's it's about thirty three percent.
0: Yeah, it's just so staggering. It's
1: staggering. No it's progress. None. I mean, one percent in twenty eight, mm. tw- almost twenty nine years. So we think about what in the world are we doing? And we talk about this all the time in DNI training, diversity and inclusion training, and and all these other efforts that are going on. And and I didn't know the the staggering number of eight billion dollars being spent on training in this area and focusing on it. But that's what What is going on? You know, really, why isn't there more progress? So, uh, See, I have a
0: theory that I'd like to uh,
1: to get your reaction
0: to. Having led a lot of businesses, and uh, it's no different, different scale, different purpose than leading an educational institution as you do. I think what happens is people have in their minds that this is the right thing to do, the legal thing to do, a nice thing to do, but what they don't believe is it's necessary for them to do. Because businesses tend to be very good at doing what they actually think they have to do. And so I think we've sort of compartmentalized all this diversity and inclusion, and let's engage all people, regardless of their appearance or their background. We kind of know that's the right thing to do, but we haven't yet figured out that it's in our interest to do it. Now, I think it's clearly in our interest to do it. And there's a lot of data that says the more diverse a team you assemble, the better your results are. There's a lot of data that supports that. You have loads of data in your own life and in all the people you've interacted with that people with disabilities have enormous gifts to contribute. Senator Bob Dole, one of America's great heroes, when I asked him Who, in your opinion, defines leadership? Without a moment of hesitation, he said, John Kemp. So it is in our interests. We are better. We do better. We produce better if we include everyone. And yet we don't, in my opinion, because we haven't figured it out. that it's actually in our interest to do that.
1: Do you know... I just can't agree with you more. And the example that I always think about is would would any wise employer really, if they're thinking about this, take 20% of their workforce or potential workforce and eliminate them and then take the cream off the top of that? Or would you rather have 100% of people to draw from and take the cream off of that. So if you're willing to just eliminate arbitrarily 20% the population of people with disabilities from your workforce and just choose to work without people with disabilities generally, you are at a disadvantage. Yeah. You are you are limiting the size of your applicant pool and your promotion pool. So just on just in logic you would say, why would you do that? Why? Why why why? And and it, it makes no sense. What happens, I think, is when it gets down to the granular level of a supervisor making a hiring decision, they tend to hire people who look and act like them.
0: That's right, because it's more comfortable. It's really, easy. And they think it's right. less risky, although over the long run, it's more risky but in my opinion. I,
1: your point about we people don't always go about solving problems exactly the same way, and that's why diversity is so valuable. People have had different experiences based on where they've come from. If you come from the inner city and you're poor and you're black, you might have a different approach to problem solving than someone else. Um, if you are a person with a disability who uses only their feet or only uses eye gaze technology, does it matter how a job is done? Maybe in a few instances there are processes that you have to follow, but for the most part, if you define the outcome and the quality that you want with the job and the time frame that you expect it to be accomplished in, do you really care? As a, as a boss or an employer, how the job is done, other, other, other than just it has to be great. The outcome has to be great and done in a timely, quality manner. Who cares? So that then should push a lot of people from the DNI communities into the applicant and promotion pools, as you are saying. So employers who don't live and breathe this, who don't take beyond, it beyond compliance, if they stay just at the compliance level, they're going to be marginal. If you, in, in average, if you want to be great as a, as a company or as an employer, you have to include all individuals in the, from the D&I community. I couldn't agree more with you.
0: It's so interesting because you just made another really important link. We started this conversation, and I said, I think people are very confused about leadership. They think it's about position, title, fame. You'll hear people say, oh, he looks like a leader. Well, appearance has nothing to do with leadership. What you talked about was problem-solving. And I think leaders know their purpose is to solve problems and change the order of things for the better. They're there to accomplish things, to make things better, to solve problems, to meet challenges. Their highest calling is to serve, to unlock potential in others, but their purpose is to solve problems and change the order of things for the better. And so the link that you made was if you want to solve problems, you need to have the broadest talent pool you can you can't afford hey the world is too complicated we got too many problems to say you know what i just don't like these people no actually you need their talent you need their heart you need their brain power you need their problem solving Mm -hmm. ability
1: may i I just say i i I think you demonstrated this in your corporate leadership and one of my very very best friends who's no longer with us was michael Mm takamura who is the chief accessibility officer at hp and you made him the chief accessibility officer and he and i talked about you often before i ever had the chance to first meet you and he was so honored and so proud that you recognized his abilities to contribute to the company and and appreciated him uh, as an, as an individual and it says everything about you and i just want to say unashamedly how proud all of us are in the disability community that you could do that 15 years ago and name a chief accessibility officer. Companies today now have chief accessibility officers. There weren't chief accessibility officers 15 years ago. So I really appreciate what you did. And so a lot of people do.
0: Well, you're, you're very kind to say, and um, Michael was a great asset to our company. And one of the things that I remember so clearly was to this point of, um, including everyone is the smart thing to do. It, yes, it's the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. One of the things I remember so clearly is having a conversation with Michael and others, but Michael in particular, he did not come to me with an argument about this is the right thing to do. The argument he came to me with was there are so many people to whom we could sell products if we would think about this community as a customer base. In other words, he made an argument to me about our business and the success of our business. And of course it was the right argument. But what I could hear in that argument was, I have no clue how to reach that market segment because that's not part of my experience set. And it's not part of the experience set of any of my executives, but it is his experience set. And so let's go unleash and unlock his potential to think about how HP can be more successful with a group of customers that we're not talking with right now.
1: It was so smart. It's, it's smart. It's just smart. And I really appreciate it because he was talking about the business opportunity that existed yes. in an unserved marketplace
0: yes and that's what I mean it was such a great example because that's what I mean when I say I think employers think about it as the right thing to do but they don't think about it as the smart thing to do I remember having a conversation at HP with a bunch of our product designers and this happened before Michael's in my conversation and they said you know we um the markets for our product this happened to be a pc are getting increasingly diverse and we have very loyal customers but they're all white males and most of them are engineers and i said well who's on the design team white male engineers who's on the marketing team white male engineers who's on the sales team white male engineers well if we want to Communicate with and serve the needs of a diverse set of customers, then we need to have a diverse team. And so I think when people link tapping the talents of everyone, regardless of their appearance or their circumstances, to the mission of an organization, things happen. And there's no question that an organization is better off, to your point. If an employer cuts off 20% of the talent that's out there, arbitrarily because of the way they look or the circumstances they have to deal with in the end how stupid is that right right. and yet and yet as the statistics demonstrate most people are still doing that
1: Right. right but but you and michael and your your company saw this potential and today this is where most companies are going the universal design of products the accessibility of websites the the remediation of documents that reside in PDF forms on websites that are 10, 15 years old that are inaccessible. But the way buildings, you know, we drew a line in the sand with ADA and others said, you know, from this day forward, we're only going to build physically buildings that are accessible. And now we're in the virtual world. So you saw the opportunity. It takes smarts and diversity.
0: When you uh, talk with the students at your wonderful school, what do you say to them about leadership? Do you use that term? What talk to me about how you talk to them as they go out into the world, lifted up, prepared, equipped, but nevertheless entering a world that will be more difficult for them than for some others?
1: I do use the word leadership. I use it a lot. <clears throat> I, I suggest to them that any any one of them can come and be the next president and ceo of the viscardi center and school and I, I say please come please try please work your way up figure out what your moves are and your, and manage your moves appropriately i also say that you they, they, to them you carry a responsibility to exhibit leadership in your daily activities people are watching you more than they're watching other people just because we're different mm-hmm. so you have to you have a responsibility to be appropriate and you know yes you can have fun and yes you can joke around but you cannot do it at someone else's expense you cannot do it at your own expense you cannot put yourself down you have to you have to have use humor and use relationships very appropriately but i talk about their responsibility to manage themselves every day as if the world was was watching them and so that's my, my little pitch to them. You be as good as you can possibly be. You study as hard as you possibly can. You're gonna need all your assets going forward into this world. And you now are empowered to go out there and talk about and advocate for yourself what you need to be heard and to be appreciated.
0: So. It's such wisdom that you give them because on the one hand, you're saying to them, you can aspire to a position and a title of leadership over over an organization. But you're also saying to them that you can lead every single day of your life by the qualities that you exhibit, by the character that you exemplify, by the way you conduct yourself and the way you interact with others. Gosh, that's such an important message for everyone, not just your students, right. that how we conduct ourselves can be an example of leadership every single day or not.
1: They, they can lead themselves. They, they can have a following of one and, and be a leader. As long, as long as they manage themselves appropriately and, and respectfully and that they treat others with what the kind of respect that they expect back, then they 're going to be fine,
0: and they can be an example to others
1: that 's what I want I want them I want them, just as my dad said, people are going to f- come behind you with disabilities you set you s- make the life uh, and, and society uh, c- available to them, so uh, you make it good for them
0: so we were talking a little bit about um You know, this fine line between empathy and sympathy or pity and um, how sometimes people are well-meaning or well-intentioned, but really they're kind of looking down on someone as opposed to lifting them up and seeing the gifts and the possibilities that are within that person. If you were giving someone advice who wanted to get more involved with the disabled community or is dealing with a disability or has a family member with a disability, what what advice would you give them or what counsel would you give them?
1: I'd say, please come. Please come get to know us. Understand that we are all equals. Don't come thinking it's a, a pity party or anything like that. Come with your heart open and your mind open and understand and appreciate everything that you are wanting to do. We will receive you very well. We will appreciate it. It's just fundamental respect for each other. And, and in the act of, of assistance, of giving help and, and assistance to others, the, the, the pay it forward theme really does apply. And I think about all the help I get in my daily life. And I have the most wonderful wife named Sam. And Sam helps me every day, but she doesn't think about it as an obligation or a duty or anything like that. She just does it, and she loves she, you. She loves me, and I love her. And I'm just really very fortunate that she's so remarkable. But when we, when I, when I talk about how you get help and give help, many times I take more help than I can give to a the person that's helping me, but I make a commitment to myself to help someone else along the way. So I'm not going to move somebody's furniture over the weekend. I'm just not the guy that anybody ever asks to do that. But I am the person that can write a letter or make a phone call or use whatever influence I might have to get some someone's attention to a, to solving a problem. That's my, that's my payback and my thank you. You know, they took the, the handles off of the back of wheelchairs about 25 years ago, and people don't really realize that, other than in, if they're in a hospital setting, they probably have handles on them. But for people who use wheelchairs as mobility devices, there aren't handles on the back. And that was because people would walk up and grab a hold of the handles and push people where they didn't really want to go. And so they stopped. They took away the temptation of that by removing the handles so that people could move themselves where they wanted to be, with power or using their arms, pumping, their, pumping the wheels of their chair it's a little symbol but it's a statement about you've got to ask and respect the wishes of the person you're assisting. So being a volunteer at Viscardi or being a volunteer or a supporter anywhere in this country, whether it's environment or not, the people most affected have to appreciate and understand your role in doing that and why you're doing it. And the the donor or the, the donor of time and effort has to respect what the person wants. What, do I, what, what am I trying to help somebody do? Otherwise, don't come, and, don't come and volunteer. If you're there to boss people around and push people into places they don't want, don't come. But if you'll come with that understanding, we would love to have you at Viscardi. And the 1.5 million, I guess, nonprofits in the country would, would love to have their support.
0: That's such a great story and a great analogy about the wheelchair. I didn't realize that. I mean, now that you say it, of course, I don't see handles on. I've spent a fair amount of time in hospitals when I was battling cancer and mine had handles and they needed to. But Mm -hmm. what a great analogy for the kind of um, attitude and respect that uh, this community deserves uh, from others.
1: That's right. Our, our mantra in our community is nothing about us without us. And so we have to be included in the decision making, whether it's public policy, corporate policy, health care benefits in a company. We have to be a part of the decision making so that our, our conditions, our wishes are heard. They don't always have to be, everything doesn't always have to go our way because somebody has to make a bigger, broader decision money is an influencer and things like that. But as long as we're included in the decision-making about what happens in our lives, then we're fine. But it's when we're not included in it and people are making decisions for us. John, I think you need to go over there. You know, John, I think you need to, you know, take this course. I'm like, well, hey, yeah, none I don't want like that, Right, exactly. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. Ask me if I'd like to do it. Tell me about it. Let me, let me decide.
0: John, I could sit here and talk to you all afternoon. I truly could. And I hope there will be many other occasions for us to continue our conversation. But I'm mindful of your time. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know from you, given your life's experiences?
1: Well, whatever brought me here today to see you again, um, I am grateful. I, I um, I admired you from afar. Then we got to know each other at LaGuardia Airport one time, and we knew we knew of each other through Michael Takamura, and today we get to visit, and I, I am just really humbled and appreciate getting to know you even better. I respect you immensely. I love my friend Bob Dole, and I'm just overwhelmed by what he said, and I you know I, I would never have known it, and I, I, I love him for who he is and everything about him, and and I thank you for sharing that with me. And to the community of people who are listening to this, I would just say people with disabilities are just like you. And not to be worried or afraid or fearful of anything about us. We just are just like you. So please accept us for that.
0: Thank you so much, John.
1: Thank you.